Today's episode is sponsored by XYZ Game Labs and their new line of pocket-sized games called Quarks. Quarks are games you can teach in three minutes and play in 30. In Season 1 of Quarks, you'll find three games. In the fast-paced Zoo Year's Eve, you'll try to sneak your animals in to the zookeeper's party. Or you can relax with the game Cultivate as you lay out plant cards to arrange the most lovely garden. Or if mind games are your thing, join an elite crew of thieves, then outmaneuver the others to get your share of the loot, or maybe more, in the intense hidden motives game, Bait and Switch. And that's just season one. Learn more at xyzgamelabs.com slash quarks, Q-U-A-R-K-S. And be sure to check out the Quarks Kickstarter launching on June 8th. And as XYZ preps for Quarks season two, they're sending out a call to members of the board game design lab community. From June 1st through July 20th, they'll be accepting entries in the Quarks Design Challenge. Go to xyzgamelabs.com QDC to learn more. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter. And 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours. And 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going micro. We're talking about micro games, but it's even more micro than that. We're talking about games that fit in an envelope that you can put the entirety of the experience and then put it in the mail like you would a regular old letter. And we're talking to Ben Downton from Prometheus Game Labs. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, really glad to have you here. You know, micro games have just exploded in popularity over the last few years, and there's now several companies that this is all they do is make these, you know, 18 card games or mint 10 games, games that you could fit in a normal size pocket, not even a cargo uh, pocket. You know, there's games like the Tiny Epic series that say it fits in your pocket, and it's like, that's a pretty big pocket, but, you know, your games and other games uh, like it, they actually do fit in your pocket and your game will actually fit in a mailbox you know in the little slot not even like the big package area but you can just put in the slot and drop it in the mail and so really excited to talk about you know how do you design one of these games how do you fit a board game full of experience into a letter sized package but before we get into that who are you how'd you get in game design all that kind of thing yeah, um, I'm Ben, uh, based out in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, I got into board game design almost exactly a year ago, and uh, I know we were talking a little bit just before the start of the show, but it's a huge credit to the BGDL podcast and to the Facebook group that's um, really been with me through through that whole journey. Uh, it started out as really just some something to do during the lockdown, something creative to do. I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a video game. And I spent maybe a couple of hours playing with, with Unity and thought, ah, this is going to be really complicated. And my brother said to me, why don't you try making a board game? And I thought, ah, this idea I have, it's not really going to work as a board game. 
And then I think the next day I woke up and was like, ah, oh, you know what? This would this would make a good board game. <laughs> um, so that was a game that I worked on. Uh, it's now actually um, not continuing with that. Worked on it for a couple of months. Uh, and then after working on that, I had a good chat with uh, Dan, who created Land of the Game. He gave me a whole ton of advice about what to do, getting into board game design and what he did. And he said, you know, what would be a really good start would be to start with something small, something simple, uh, maybe even a micro game, you know, get some experience, go through the whole process and then kind of use that as your learning experience. And that's how I ended up here with this game. Very cool. And so let's get a good working definition because there are lots of different types of micro games now. And so tell me kind of in your mind, in your opinion, what is a micro game? And then how do your games fit into kind of this micro game culture? You know, lots of different ways to do it. Yeah. So I think of micro games, there's there's two ways I think of them. One is, I guess, the size is the obvious one. Um, And usually we see a lot of micro games um, that have a very specific format, like the Mintin games or uh, like an 18-card game. Um, and I know we'll, we'll talk about the manufacturing process later, but there's a, there's a reason there's a lot of 18-card games and not many 19-card micro games. Um, I also tend to think of micro games as being pretty small and simple to play, so easy to get into, You know, not, not like a ton of setup time or a very lengthy uh, experience. They tend to be shorter. Uh, they don't have to be, but I think they tend towards that. And there's an expectation from people that a micro game is a little bit lighter. Yeah, that's a really good point and something I want to dive into in, in just a minute as far as like what people's expectations are and how do you lean into that as opposed to giving them a, a you know, Twilight Imperium experience in 18 cards, because <laughs> maybe that's yeah. not the best way to go. Uh, <laughs> but before we get into that, why do you think people are so excited about these games? They're doing really well on Kickstarter. I mean, Buttonshot Games has done some, I mean, some $100,000 plus Kickstarter campaigns in the recent uh, past. And, and so like, what in the world draws people to these games? Um, I think one of the the draws of a micro game is uh, because they're small and simple to produce. Cost is obviously a big factor. Uh, I think it's quite nice to be able to sort of pick up a game, um, even if it's one that you're you know you've not been waiting five years for and you're super hyped to jump into a lengthy campaign. You can you know some for the price of even for the price of a coffee, you can pick up a game. And actually, if you play it three four times, you know even if you get an evening's play out of it, it's actually still pretty good value for money. Um, another thing which is particularly on my mind at the moment is traveling. So we've not done a lot of traveling over the last year or two, but uh, I think with the world starting to get to a state where it can open up again, I think people are thinking about traveling again. And microgrames are just great to take with you. You know, they don't tend to take up too much bag space. They also don't tend to take up too much table space. And because they're a bit quicker, usually, uh, you know, you don't have lengthy setup and things. Uh, they're great for traveling because you can bust it out, play a game in like sort of 10 to 20 minutes, um, pack it away again and, and move on with whatever you're doing. So that's why I think micro games are, uh, are pretty popular. Yeah. And just going from like the, the customer, you know, marketing, whatever psychology, I think also they make really good impulse buys. You know, most of the time these games are around $10, 15 bucks, almost always under 20 and whether you're walking up to the register at a friendly local game store and all of a sudden there's like a, a group of those games sitting at the register because they're so small, they don't take up much shelf space. And it's like, oh, that looks like an interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop eight bucks on that. I'll drop 10 bucks on that. Or it's on Kickstarter. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got a few extra dollars in my budget this month versus that hundred dollar game full of miniatures and full of, you know, 50 hours of campaign content, whatever. It's like, well, that's a little bit harder sell versus a ten dollar you know, 18 card game. And so I think that also kind of plays into this. I want to talk about that in a little bit more depth 
in a minute when we get into the kind of the marketing and things like that. Uh, but why in the world would you design one of these? What is what is bringing so many designers to this space and, and kind of helping them or, or causing them to want to create games of this genre? Yeah, so for me as a first-time designer, it was a fantastic opportunity to um, kind of cut my teeth, I suppose, by learning a lot of different aspects around, you know, game design, um, fulfillment for a campaign and all of those aspects without producing, you know, a hundred dollar game that takes me five years to create with all these nice minis and then find, oh, actually it's not that great a game or, oh, it didn't do very well on Kickstarter. Um, So it was a good way to get something done um, very quickly. It's still a ton of work. to, to put in perspective, I think from the, the very first prototype that I made to the point where I felt it was ready enough to, to commission the artwork and there weren't any fundamental changes was about six weeks. Uh, and preparing for the campaign has been about eight months. <laughs> so <laughs> it's still relatively short in the, the Kickstarter lifecycle. Um, but it's quite quick to sort of get an idea out. Um, another nice thing I think about sort of creating a micro game in this way was because the mechanics is fairly simple, also, rather I'd say the game can showcase the mechanic and that can be the majority of the game. Um, if you think about larger games where they have lots of different components, lots of different things going on combined in different ways, a micro game can be very much focused around that one idea that you have, um, which makes it much easier to kind of test out, refine, and then sort of bring a, a complete experience without having to have a, a whole ton of content around to support it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, it's a reason why I suggest or encourage new designers uh, to travel down this road early on, because it doesn't require the the length of design time, or usually it doesn't require near as much playtesting as a big, sprawling game that takes two hours to play or whatever. Because a lot of times I find, and this is something that I definitely experienced, and I've talked to a lot of other new designers, uh, you come out the gate designing a game, and it's like, I want to make this massive in scope game that I actually don't have the skill set yet to accomplish. And it's very frustrating. Uh, I remember early on, I, I got super frustrated because I couldn't create the game that I, I saw in my mind. I couldn't turn it into a real thing. And it was just beyond my skill set at the time. It was beyond the scope of what I was capable of as a, uh, a designer. And I feel like um, micro games and 18 card games and these games that fit in mint, mint tens, it's a little bit easier because you know, they're smaller. They're, they don't have as much going on. There's not uh, as many systems typically, or as many mechanisms to test. And so even if you're not trying to publish a game or get it signed or go to Kickstarter with it, it's just a wonderful introduction into game design as a hobby, as a creative space, as an art, an art form. And so it's another reason why I would kind of push people down this road, even if it's not, you know, oh, I want to go to Kickstarter and try to turn this into a, a real product or, you know, open, start a company or something like that. And so I think it's, it's a great way for new designers to to get into actually designing games. And it's also a great way to learn. What were some of the things that you learned by creating small games that maybe you wouldn't have learned as quickly if you had tried to do, you know, right off the bat, tried to do a, a big, massive 4X experience kind of thing? What were some of these things you learned from these small games? Yeah, I learned a lot. And I learned a lot of things that I wasn't expecting to learn as well. Um, this is more related to, I suppose, the, the pricing, but because micro games tend to be um, much cheaper to produce and also much lower cost, it usually prohibits you from doing a lot of the things that a, a larger game or larger campaign would want to do. So things like using um, 
partners in fulfillment, using partners for finance uh, and accounting, uh, using partners for things like marketing, all of those kind of things when you're, you know, when you're doing the whole end to end um, for, for the game uh, means you have to learn a lot of things about, you know, international shipping, you learn about customs, you learn about, I've read a lot of VAT law recently um, and things like that. So there's a lot of non-game design stuff that I've learned that's that's gone along with it. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle that, that I feel like most people don't even think about. Like you're going to be forced to learn these things, especially if you're going to publish it yourself, go to Kickstarter, that kind of thing, because you don't have the margins of a big game. If you're selling a game for $100 on Kickstarter, then there's a hopefully there should be a decent amount of money you're making per sale. But if you're selling a game for $12 or 15 bucks on Kickstarter, you're not making nearly as much per sale. Now, hopefully you're going to make a lot more sales and it kind of bounces out, but you know, the way the math works, but that, that's definitely something to be thinking about. You're not going to have as much monetary flexibility with, with things. And so it's definitely something to, to keep in mind. It means doing a lot more um, of those things yourself, which means if, if you're putting a value on your time, actually you're, you're, you're really not getting a, a great return on your time, which is perhaps one of the, the, the negative aspects of, of designing a micro game because you're having to do a lot of this stuff yourself. Um, but by learning that stuff to do it yourself, it means you can communicate a lot better with your partners when it comes to it. So, for example, being able to communicate with my manufacturer about the limitations we have around, you know, die line spacing or how we're going to manage um, bleed lines and things like that. When I then work with, um, say, artists in future and graphic designers and um, other manufacturers, I'll understand the language that they're talking and the limitations they have and be able to suggest solutions rather than just sort of relying on them to, you know, hopefully do the best job possible. So I'm um, learning that process, although it's very time consuming now, it means you're better able to work with partners in future when, if, or if you do do make larger games. Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember back in college when I was playing football, we had a couple coaches who had played in the NFL. And whenever they told you something, whenever they coached you on a certain technique or a certain way of doing whatever, you listened a little bit more than maybe you would have to another coach who didn't play at the highest level and, you know, who didn't make millions of dollars playing the sport. Right. And so when you have that extra knowledge, that expertise, when you can say, hey, I've done this before, I've traveled down this road. Here are the things I've learned. Here are the mistakes I've made. Here's here's the best practices that work really well. It goes a long way in one saving you money down the road because you're not having to spend time fixing things or going back to redo something or you, you made a mistake with the manufacturing and now you got to reprint the cards or whatever. And so, yeah, that's a really good point as far as the infrastructure you build in yourself and in your company when you do have to uh, learn these other skills or other uh, skill sets. I think that's a really valuable thing. Mm. What about from just designing these games? Living, I feel like you have to live in a, a no pun intended, a small box uh, yeah. to, to design these games, right? Because you are constrained by the number of cards, number of components, number of things that you can actually fit in there. So what were some of the things you learned from that in that regard, as far as the constraints of designing these games? So I was going to say that learning all that other stuff did actually feed back into the design process. It, it seems like you'd want to start with the design and then go through to say, okay, now we'll start laying stuff out for manufacturing. And, and then from there, we'll figure out how it's going to be produced. And you know, then from there, we'll figure out the shipping. Um, because I started with the uh, shipping in mind, basically, um, it, it came out of uh, a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. One of my main uh, frustrations with, with Kickstarter campaigns is the, the amount of time it takes from 
say backing a, a project to, to receiving it but also i think everyone now it's almost a regular occurrence to say sorry the shipping price has increased sorry your order is going to now be delayed so starting with the end result which is the shipping which is how does how is someone going to get this game feeds back into the start of the process which is the design part so i started with a c5 envelope which um for UK sizes is the largest envelope that can be shipped and still be classed as a letter. So it means it's the, the cheapest shipping option that's available from the UK and it's available to ship internationally. So by taking that C5 envelope, scaling down the size a little bit to allow for the thickness of a punch board and so on, I then had my, my outer limit of what I could work with, which was 220 millimeters by 150 millimeters. That, that number's now burned in my brain <laughs> because that's been my template. Uh, for the design for these envelope games from here. So it's basically the maximum amount that we could get, but still be um, shipped as a letter. So from there, then I had the space uh, that I had to work in. So that meant if I designed too much content, you know, you can get with the early stages during design, you can end up with a bit too much bloat or end up with too much. I actually had a limitation, like a, a physical limitation, this rectangle telling me I can't fit any more than this on this page. So I'm going to need to cut stuff down until it's absolutely the best parts. Um, I ended up cutting some parts of the game for size reasons into, and then turning that into parts of the advanced game, for example. So having that physical limitation right from the start meant that uh, I cut, you had to cut the game down to really to its best parts. So that was a, a huge benefit starting with the end result. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're also having to deal with thickness. You can't have, uh, I mean, a letter can only be so thick, otherwise it won't run through the machines and, and the post office will be like, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to turn this into a package. And so I'm assuming you couldn't have dice and things like that because they would be too thick, right? Yeah, that's right. So so no dice. Uh, there are some things we can do to simulate dice. Uh, so if you want to have some randomness in your game, say uh, you want to use a D4, one of the things you could do is have uh, two tokens double-sided with different colors and then flip them and the combination of those colors will give you uh, four different results so you can replace some components in that way uh, i think also having games that don't rely too much on randomness uh, also helps because then you you can have all the pieces or all the things you need as your game sort of be be visible and available rather than needing to sort of you know roll a dice and, and draw a card and things like that Right. I feel like living inside this small box causes you to have to become more clever as a game designer. You have to figure out ways to make the components multi-use, whether the cards have different icons and different locations and they mean different things, or you're using both sides of the cards, or like you're saying, you use tokens in place of other things. You have to get a little bit uh, clever with your design space, and I feel like that can only make you a better designer, uh, because if you're designing a game that lives in this giant box and it's going to be 100 bucks, uh, you, you don't have to be as clever, because the prices of things don't matter quite as much. The size of components don't matter quite as much. Now there's obviously a ceiling to that, a limit to that. You don't want a game that costs 40 bucks to manufacture and has to be a $200 game or something like that. Um, but I feel like this is, is super helpful in uh, helping new designers learn some things. But let's look at the other side. Why, why would it be a bad idea? Why would a game designer not want to design one of these games? Um, so one of the... The biggest challenge is, is that, as we've talked about, the, the low margin on, on the games, meaning you, you really don't have that much to work with when it comes to 
all the other parts of the process, like you know the, the manufacturing, the shipping, um, and, and all the other costs that come with uh, producing and, and creating a board game. It means probably a lot of the stuff you're doing um, will be time spent yourself uh, doing those things. Uh, arguably, you know your, your time does have value, and paying someone to uh, to do that stuff for you would would certainly save you some of that time. Uh, but it's just going to be impossible to produce a, a low-cost game without taking on some of that stuff yourself. Um, I'd also say perhaps that in that same um, sort of vein, there's there's less return on your time. So the amount of time you spend creating the game in terms of the design and the playtesting can be a little bit shorter than developing a you know a huge campaign game, for example. But the amount of effort you put into, say, reaching fans, for example, and getting people excited about your game, that takes about as much time to reach, say, one more person, whether you have a, a $5 game or a $150 game. But of course, if, if you can reach that one person and they're interested in your massive campaign game with minis, then you're going to get a lot more return on your time for selling you know, a handful of copies of your huge campaign game than you will your micro game. Yeah, that's really a really good point and, and something to be aware of is it, it, it is harder to start a business or to create a sustainable business with this model. Other people have done it, though, so it's not like it's impossible. I mean, some several uh, several very popular, very successful companies have turned this into their main thing, Button Shy Games being the, the main one that, that comes to mind. And they have a whole subscription model where people uh, are through Patreon, get games every single month, and they've built up a tremendous audience around their games. And so it, it is possible, but uh, it, it's not for the faint of heart, for sure. And this is definitely not something that you're going to turn into your uh, full-time day job anytime yeah. soon. Like It takes a lot of building and creating the audience and creating a lot of really good games that, that then hopefully down the road you can turn into a business. But at the same time, maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you just want to pitch one of these games. And so as far as pitching goes or as far as designing a game that's unique, did you find it challenging to create a game that hasn't already been done before or hasn't already had something similar because you are living in this kind of constrained space? Did you find it a little bit more challenging to create something that was more unique than say, if you were designing this big, you know, massive kind of sprawling game? Um, I actually found it less challenging, I think, because with a, with a micro game, I was thinking of sort of unique mechanics, and then from there I was building around it. It started, uh, MicroDojo started with this idea of, of the movement mechanic and that sort of tight um, sort of feel you get from from games like Onitama and uh, Cerebria. So because the, the game is really sort of enshrined around this, this one idea of the mechanic, uh, once you've got an idea for this kind of unique take on a mechanic, the whole game can really just showcase that, and that can be the game experience. Whereas... Uh, for larger games, you know, having one kind of unique mechanic, it, it can be a nice hook and it can make people go, oh, hey, that's cool. But it's quite hard to build an entire game around a, a completely new, unique mechanic. So from that point of view, um, I think designing a micro game is uh, or designing a unique micro game, I'd say, is um, is a little bit easier. Gotcha. That's a great way to look at it. Now, when it comes to designing a kind of a micro micro game, a game that fits in an envelope, what were some of the challenges you ran into? What were some of the ways that you were able to pack a bunch of experience into a very small package? So one of the things that really helps is using table space in the design. And it's kind of weird when we think about designing the game and thinking about sort of the physicality of it. Um, especially when you do a lot of testing on Tabletop Simulator, where the physical limitations don't feel as apparent as when it's uh, in front of you on a table or, or in your hands. 
Um, but using the, the table space as part of your play area can sort of make the game feel bigger or you can do more with that space than you would if you were just trying to constrain it you know all within a, a the play area within say a tiny board or a, a few pieces of cards or tokens gotcha and so what were some of the ways that you were able to like we talked about earlier you kind of have to get clever and you already mentioned your tokens what were some of the other ways that you were able to use the components in maybe multiple ways or kind of get more bang for your buck for an individual component yeah so uh, one of the ways that was um, quite good to get into a small package was the rule book. So the rule book is uh, the one I'm using is printed on a standard uh, US letter size, but it folds up three by three. So it fits around about the size of the board. That means you can use the back of the rule book as like the rules reference, but also the front of the rule book can be your cover. So because it's difficult to ship such a small game and ship in an envelope with a box, it means with like a little Ziploc bag, you can actually still have a cover and a nice looking package. Um, without the, all the costs associated and the shipping costs and everything of having a bigger um, rigid box. Um, as for the tokens, having things that are, are double-sided, I didn't actually go the double-sided route for tokens uh, in the end. Um, one of the reasons for that is there's a, a fair bit of random setup in my game, and I didn't want to have the exclusion where, you know, if you're using one side of the token, it means you can't use the other one. Uh, but double-sided tokens do work really well. They can give you almost twice as much board space because you can print things on the back as well as the front. Uh, if you're using really tiny tokens, uh, like I am, I've got quite a lot packed into this punch board. Um, when you're using things like, say, a deck of cards and you want them to be shuffled, or say you're doing building tiles in a regular game and you, you want people to randomize them, you need to have the same backs because otherwise people could know which one's which it makes it difficult to randomize but when you have really tiny pieces people can actually just put it in you know the palm of their hand or in a cup uh, and it's pretty easy to randomize even if they don't have unique backs so you can get around some of those things um, just by using uh, double-sided tokens yeah that makes a lot of sense now is the envelope itself part of the game in any way is it printed does it have any you know does it even have anything on it or is it just a regular old white or off-white envelope that you put in the mail or, or is it actually kind of part of the game okay you're giving me so many ideas for the next game already <laughs> no the one <laughs> the one i'm using is um i'm using a just a standard envelope um but they're uh, stiffened cardboard back ones uh i had expected that the punch boards would be sort of solid enough to ship in a regular envelope uh, but then someone suggested to me you know what they, they still might get bent they still might get damaged why not use a stiffened envelope just to, to be sure so I actually ended up taking the the thickness of that envelope into account along with the game and the and the rule book that's going to slide in there and had the had the digital calipers out to check that yeah, that's, that's really smart because the last thing you want to do is, is have something one millimeter or two millimeters over the limit and now you got to pay extra shipping and that screws up everything. But it, yeah, it'd be really interesting to kind of have something screen printed or something written or something on the actual envelope. Maybe that's where the board is. I mean, you could put the game board and obviously it might get damaged in the mailing process or whatever, but I feel like that's some interesting design space. So yeah, feel free to take that idea, man, turn it into something cool and uh, just give me a credit <laughs> in the rule book or something. Next, <laughs> next game, next game. Yeah, we won't need to print boards anymore. We'll just ship envelopes. Exactly. I mean, what a, again, you have to get creative. You have to get kind of outside the box, literally in this case, uh, and figure out ways that you can overcome the component challenge, the shipping challenge, especially now. International shipping, 
especially is just ridiculous. It is absolutely mm. insane and, and something that Kickstarter backers don't fully understand yet. I think they're coming to figure it out more and more as you have more delays, as you have more prices going way up. It is, it's insane right now. And so anything you can do mm. to kind of overcome that challenge as a publisher, I feel like is going to pay huge uh, dividends and provide a, maybe a better experience for your, your backers or your customers because you can keep shipping a little bit lower. You can keep your margins uh, in a good place even without having to, to raise prices. And so I think that's something to, uh, to keep in mind. Now, let's continue talking a little bit more about the manufacturing side of things. You mentioned uh, earlier that 18 cards, there's a reason. So tell me about that reason. And then tell me about some other things that you've noticed or you've seen or learned when it comes to manufacturing these small games. Yeah. So a lot of the um, board game manufacturers and I guess printers the world over will have certain like standard sizes that they will print on. And uh, 18 cards is, is the one that always springs to mind because you can get 18 cards on a standard sheet. So if you want to print, a 19 card deck that means you're actually paying the cost of two sheets to be printed and you're wasting all those remaining 17 spaces on the second sheet that you're not using for the game so taking advantage of of that space is is quite important yeah absolutely and so what else what else have you learned as far as tokens as far as anything else manufacturing wise that maybe you didn't know or, or something you feel like other people need to be aware of going in so understanding the die lines um, and how punch boards get printed is probably the thing that I've, I've learned the most about during this. Um, most of the manufacturers want to have uh, around uh, six millimeters between each die line. So they have like a three millimeter bleed on the outside of the die line to allow for it to shift a little bit. And then a three millimeter margin on the inside. Um, now I'll admit for my design, I've really pushed the limits on that. We are getting away with the margin on the inside around about one and a half millimeters. Um, and we're using some little tricks to make it line up a little better. Like we're using some crop marks um, to help the front and the back line up when it comes to printing, because it's not so much an issue that they can't get the die lined up with the punch board once it's done. It's more that the front and the back might be slightly off during the printing process. And it's off by such a small amount. We're talking, you know, one or two millimeters that you would never even notice it in pretty much any larger size game. Uh, but when it comes to a micro game, you're really pushing the limits of what the manufacturing can do, which means you have to kind of design your your tokens and your pieces with that in mind. So it's tempting when you're working, you know, with your artist, with graphic design, or if you're doing it yourself working in um, whatever program you're using, you see it on the screen and you want to put a load of information on and make it nice and clear. And you realize actually you need to take into account how it's going to look when it's shrunk down to size printed and how it's going to look uh, with those margins, because you can't print right up to the edge of those pieces. Yeah, it's a really good point. And you also probably need to find a manufacturer that is capable of doing things that are very, very precise like that. I've talked to some people and they, they've gone with a manufacturer that had a very different uh, die line limit, basically, where you had to have a certain number of millimeters in between tokens, and things like that. And it's like, wow, that's that's way bigger than manufacturer I've used, which was much smaller. And so I don't know if they're just using different machinery or, or what, but that's definitely something you want to keep in mind when you reach out to manufacturer and ask them, hey, what's the minimum uh, number of millimeters in between tokens or in between cuts and things like that? Because it might be different depending on the manufacturer. And so that's, that's definitely something to, to be aware of. Uh, when it comes to the actual envelopes, I'm just, I'm still thinking through, like, this is such a cool idea. <laughs> uh, where, where do you put all the required information? So for instance, different governments in different countries or the EU, whatnot, you're required to put information typically on the box as far as the, the age range and all sorts of different just legal info. 
How do you how do you do that with these kinds of games? So I believe some of it can go onto the rulebook if it's a like a, a complete package um, where you're going to be sending like the rulebook separately with uh, with the punch board. Um, I have made in the UAE printed uh, on the punch board as well. Uh, I should have mentioned that uh, I'm getting it printed here locally, which is also one of the benefits of doing a, a micro game like this, which, which maybe we can talk about um, in a little bit as well. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Go ahead and travel down that road. Yeah, so uh, because when you're printing, like, say, just a punch board or just a, a simple rule book um, as one piece to fit in an envelope, it means you don't have to do a lot of complicated things like um, printing separate components. Like, let, let's take a, a, a standard size board game that might have the box to be produced. Then you've got a bunch of, say, wooden components to be printed, maybe screen printed, maybe cut. Then you've got another set of printing for perhaps the cards, another set of printing for the tokens, one for the board. And then all those things need to be combined into one package with no missing pieces and then shipped as a complete product from the factory. Whereas if you're doing something like, say, just a punch board, like, like I'm doing, or you're doing just a sheet of cards, uh, a lot of non-board game manufacturers that do a lot of regular printing, this will be well within the kind of work they normally do. You know, printing and die cutting is, is pretty standard for a lot of printers. Uh, so it means you can use local printers, um, maybe get it cheaper than, than having it manufactured elsewhere. But also it means because they're local, you can check the quality straight away. You can check for any issues like whether the die lines aren't quite aligned or whether you've got, you know, edges cropped off. Um, you don't have to wait a month for your samples to arrive to then find out you have a, a change you need to make in the design. So that, I think that's one of the, the benefits of doing it um, in this way is because you can use a, a local printer instead of a, a experienced board game manufacturer and that, that cuts, cuts costs down. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know I've talked to a lot of people who want to print in the United States or inside the country that they live for all sorts of reasons. But shipping being one of the main ones, you don't have to deal with the freight shipping and worrying about a container and getting it from China. And it takes six weeks and then it got stuck at the port and then a global pandemic happened. And now what do I do? Like there's so many good <laughs> reasons why this would be a really good idea. And when you're able to put the game inside such a small package and it is such a limited number of components and you're not dealing with a lot of like custom stuff or plastic or dice or things like that. Uh, you can do some more interesting things when it comes to manufacturing and still keep the cost low and also the logistics uh, less of a nightmare, less of a headache, especially when you know things go crazy in the international shipping space. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's definitely something uh, to be thinking about. Any, and again, else? A Again, as a, as a first-time designer, you know, any chance to, to minimize headaches and minimize things going wrong, uh, the, the less links there are in that chain from, from sort of thinking, first thinking about the game to getting it into people's hands, the better. Um, one other thing about local printers also, if it's, it's something that people are thinking about more and more, is it'll have a bit of a lower carbon footprint as well. So if you do get games produced locally, it has less of an environmental impact as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And going back to your previous previous point, you're, you're not lying, man. Whenever you're talking about getting started and figuring things out, especially in a game that has a very low margin, you find out real quick that if you make a mistake by just a little bit, it's going to cost you potentially the profit of the entire project uh, and maybe more, you know? And so, yeah, anything you can do to limit the number of, of balls in the air or, or the number of things that you're juggling or trying to figure out or logistics or the supply chain, anything you can do that limits that or decreases the number of moving parts I think is, is a great thing. It's a super smart thing to do as a new creator, new designer, new publisher. And even if you're not making as much money, so it might even be worth it to spend a little bit more 
to print these components in country or close to where you live, it might it might be cheaper to still do it in China or still do it somewhere else. But it might be worth it to pay a little bit more locally. That way, you don't have to deal with as much of the logistics or the headaches that come from you know international business. And so that's something else to take into account. It's not just about the dollars and cents like on, on the page, as far as like the quote, it's about all the extra, the opportunity costs, the time, the hassle, the language barrier, all that other stuff to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you know, you don't want to order your samples and wait a month for them to arrive and then deal with customs and find out, okay, they're no good. I'm going to need to start over. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with all the new laws coming into play because of Brexit, because of the EU changing some things with their tax codes and tax systems as far as imports and exports. That's another thing that this this potentially saves you on uh, if you're doing it in country. You don't have to maybe deal with tariffs or import taxes or the VAT. Like, it, it just might be a lot easier to deal with from a legal standpoint as well. Is that something else you found? Yeah, I'm actually producing them in country because I'm here, uh, but my plan is to take them back to the UK for international shipping because the shipping rates are a lot better from the UK and because that's that's where I'm originally from. Uh, I mean, this is an, there's another thing about designing a micro game is I'm, I'm combining it with other things. So I'm actually combining it with a trip back home to, to visit the family. And the intention was originally to bring the first 500 copies in my luggage because 500 copies of the game is going to be about 25 kilos, which is well within the uh, the baggage allowance. Uh, and then you can go through customs the normal way and, and save on freight. And uh, speaking of reducing links in the chain, it also means that I have confidence that when I arrive in country, those games are there because I've, I've physically carried them. You know, I'm not nervously checking a shipping update and finding that a ship's got stuck somewhere. It's, it's one less thing to worry about. So... And now the only thing you have to worry about is getting a funny look from the guy who opens up your bag at security at the airport. And he's like, what, what is this? And now you maybe have to have an awkward conversation, but that's it. You don't have to deal with a ship being stuck in the Suez Canal for, yeah. a week. And, you know, for, you know, things like that. Uh, and so it's definitely something to, to be aware of. Or maybe we have an awkward conversation and, you know, we do a quick demo and maybe you have one more backer. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, just give the game away. Like, hey, man, I know you're having a hard, hard day over here you're taking all these bags whatnot here. I just want to give you this. And it didn't cost you much. You know, you didn't. Yeah. It wasn't a $30 game you had to uh, to give away. It was, you know, a $2 game or however, however much it cost to to manufacture. Uh, anything well, else? In the, go ahead. That's one thing, actually, on your um, your previous point I wanted to make about, you know, the margins are very tight on this game. So if, if you do make a mistake, you know, you, like you say, it can, can wipe out all your profit margin. Uh, that said, doing this is a great experience to make mistakes in because if something goes wrong like um, 500 copies just of the punch board um, even at that minimum order quantity uh, of, of 500 copies uh, 500 copies of, of uh, those punch boards is, is not a lot of money I think it's around about like $400 something like that so if the worst thing happens which is the entire shipment gets lost or uh, they're all printed wrong or something it's not going to bankrupt me by having to print another whole set of copies. Whereas if it was, again, a, a much larger game, you know, if we had to reprint another 500 copies of a, a full-size $50 game, that's potentially a, a very big problem to have. So the the micro game in this small format, especially ones that fit into the envelope where they, they don't take up much space to bring back as luggage, means if, if something does happen, they get held up at customs or whatever, it's not uh, a crippling problem. Yeah, and this is such a great way to mitigate your risk. That's one of your biggest factors when you're starting a company is what's your risk? How much money are you going to put in that you potentially lose all of? 
And when you're doing things in with you know these kind of smaller games that are cheaper to create, cheaper to, cheaper to produce, cheaper to uh, ship, the risk goes way way down. And so instead of having to to foot the bill of printing a game that's expensive and you have to print you know two thousand copies because that's the minimum at the manufacturer or whatever, and then you have this massive amount of inventory and hopefully you can sell it. And well now all those numbers get smaller. You you start taking zeros, you start taking commas off of these numbers. <laughs> And it gets a lot more manageable. And now you can kind of build it from the ground up. You're a lot more flexible. You don't have as much money wrapped up in inventory at any given time. You can do maybe more projects. And so instead of doing one big project, you do three small projects. It just allows a lot of flexibility. And I think that's something else. It's just something it's great to think about for new people getting into the hobby and maybe getting into publishing and wanting to do their own thing is this gives you that flexibility. And so I think that's something uh, that, that stands out as, as why you might want to travel down this road. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I just think it's fantastic for a, for a new designer certainly to to look into one of these games because you you learn so much, and um, if if the plan is uh, as my plan is to make this not just one game but to to start a company out of this and to um, to continue making games. Uh, we talked about sort of the the costs earlier about you know reaching people, but let's say you know you have your big game and it can be a huge success by reaching say a couple of hundred people. For these small games, because it's an impulse purchase, like you mentioned, you actually have an opportunity to reach a lot more people. Uh, by reaching a lot more people, you might make less money than you would with a big game. But by reaching all those people, you can demonstrate that you can deliver a quality product, you can deliver on time, um, you can uh, you know communicate well, and all of these things that needs to happen rather than just making a good game. Uh, and then those people are hopefully fans for the next game that you produce. And then if you do start with micro games, but move to a larger game, it's giving you a way of, of building up that audience without just having to sort of come out of nowhere and spend a load of money on advertising. You've, you've built real fans that way. Absolutely. And so much of building up an audience comes into, it comes to trust. How much does someone trust that you're actually going to take their money and return a product? And on Kickstarter, trust is getting harder and harder to come by. So many people have been burned. So many campaigns, unfortunately, have never fulfilled or have been you know, years. And still, you know, they claim, hey, we're working on the game. It's going to come soon. I know it's two years late, but we're still... And people have gotten a lot less trusting. And so doing something small, it's not expensive. You know, Someone is much more likely to trust you with $20 than $50 or $100. And you, you get to build up your audience, build up your your company, uh, build up your brand that way. And it's a, a lower threshold of trust for people to to cross over and, and buy your thing or a pledge or whatever uh, for your product. So I think that's something else. And let's let's keep talking about that a little bit more. As far as marketing goes, what, what are some of the things you've been learning? What, was, what are some of the things you, you've kind of figured out as far as marketing these envelope games? So from the start, I figured that advertising, sort of the normal way of advertising, sort of run ads and get people to sign up to the pre-launch and, and reach people that way is, is probably just completely out. Um, I think a good, what I've heard is a fairly good metric for getting, say, email signups is around about a dollar per signup. That's, I, I gather that the ads are performing quite well, I think, if, if that's what happens. And then what I also hear is around, you can expect around one in 10 of those people to actually back the campaign. So that means it's a very rough metric. You can say, okay, it's costing about $10 to get a backer. So that doesn't really make adverts worth worth running if, if your game is, is $10 or less. So a lot of what I've been doing is completely organic. So just reaching out to people, playing the game with them, talking about it, sharing it amongst friends. And it's just uh, sort of slowly built over time uh, from there. Uh, there was a huge 
huge influx of people um i was quite blown away by it, by it actually um when i put up the link in the uh, print and play gaming uh form and loads of people wanted to access the game and download it so i've had the print and play made available throughout the design process literally from from day one as it's developed and keep uploading new copies for testing um now it's it's reached final so the final one is up there but another nice thing about doing these kind of small envelope games is I can tell people, look, it's a, it's a print and play. It prints on one sheet of paper. That's it. it you're not going to have to be spending evenings cutting stuff out with, you know, specialist uh, specialist tools and having some expertise. And I know there's some quite serious um, print and play gamers out there, but for a lot of people, you, you don't want to spend a lot of time building your game. People just want to buy it and have it and play it. So having it available on this this single sheet was, I think the number of people signed up practically doubled in one day just to download and play this game. Uh, whereas that's much harder to do if you have a larger game. Yeah, that's a really good point right there is that you, you have so much access to potential playtesters and potential people that are in the print and play community because the game is so accessible and it's just a sheet or, or two of tokens and maybe some cards and, and it's not there's not a lot. You're not asking people a lot to print off the game and cut it out and then play it or play test it. And so, yeah, that's a really excellent point. There's so many print and play communities online. Facebook has so many groups now that uh, this is what they do. And, and a group of people who love creating games or like putting them together, the, the arts and crafts aspect of it, they love that maybe more than they enjoy playing the actual game. And so, yeah, this opens up a lot of avenues uh, for those crowds to be aware of your game and for you to kind of be a champion in, in those communities to say, hey, I'm designing games for you, for people like you that enjoy these games that are easy to print, produce, and you know, create and, and make on your own. And so that's another thing to, uh, to be thinking about. And those people in that community are actually great champions for the game as well. So when I, I first posted, I think it was several months ago, so it was an earlier sort of prototype version. And with, within the day, one of the members of the community had, had messaged me and said, hey, I've printed off the game. Um, I want to improve some of the components. So the uh, I have these meeples uh, that are just, they're meeple art, but they're on flat tokens because <laughs> everything's flat to fit into the envelope. And by the afternoon, he'd messaged me and said, hey, I've taken the artwork and I've made these 3D printable, uh, nice resin meeples that you can use to upgrade the game. So you can still ship uh, a flat game in an envelope and then people can print their own like cool upgraded components. It was awesome. And so tell me more about that as far as like how how you how do you do that? Maybe you put like a little flyer in the game or you put like a link on the back of the rule book or something like that where people can go and, and you say, hey, if you want to download the 3D miniatures that you can that you can print, if you have a 3D printer or have access to one, here's ways to upgrade the game. Here's a link to go do that. What are some things you're either doing or thinking about as far as that kind of stuff? Yeah, having a little QR code on the rulebook, um, I've used that also for people to access translations of the rules. So I couldn't necessarily uh, print lots of different copies and in doing doing fulfillment for a small envelope game from lots of fulfillment centers doesn't really work because the fulfillment costs, although it's still cheap to ship, will end up sort of eating m most of the cost of the, the, the shipping and the game there. So it means it's all shipping internationally from, from one location. Um, so having like a QR code in the rulebook for people to download um, the translated rules means you can reach more people because people like to play games in their native language if they can. Um, so having that QR code in there and you can continually update the um, sort of if you have a, an online folder there or something I use use Google Drive, uh, people can then download updates from there. Also letting people know after the campaign and uh, sending out to your email list, letting people know that there's upgraded components, things like that. Uh, one of the things I'm planning to do 
for the launch is actually to offer a 3D printable box. So the game's going to ship flat and it will be stored in a, a, a plastic baggie that comes with the game. But if you want to 3D print your own box, then that's going to be made available to you. So having people do stuff at home with, with 3D printers being much more accessible and even with maker spaces out there for people that don't have 3D printers, um, printing components and things at home as, as upgrades, not necessarily the core part of the game, because that, that's not very popular if you don't include everything that's needed. But having those upgrades there as sort of additional um, you know, add-ons you can create yourself is, uh, is something you can do to sort of add value to the game. Yeah, that's a really good point. Make sure everything necessary for the game is in the envelope, is inside the box. Like You only want to do extra stuff or upgradable things or, or things people can add in if they want to for the, the other, for the links of the QR code or Google Drive or that kind of thing. Uh, I saw a, a post, this is a while back on the in the BGDL Facebook community where someone was effectively asking about this kind of thing and they said, hey, what if I didn't include a rule book in the box? What if it was there was just a link to where you could get the PDF? What do people think about that? And it was overwhelmingly negative as far as like, don't do that. That'd be really frustrating. I would hate the game. I would ask for a refund. Like there's so many like negative responses to doing that and so I, I think we're just not there yet as soon as you said that that exact post came into my mind <laughs> same one yeah no nope, yep. hate it <laughs> yeah exactly and so even though that would be maybe better for the environment and it would make the game maybe a little bit cheaper maybe a dollar cheaper depending on the manufacturing cost of the rule book and how thick it is and all the cost that goes into it uh, it would make it easier to update the rules you know a lot of times rule books come with typos and mistakes unfortunately and so that, that would make it much easier to fix those things, if you just had a digital version, you could just update uh, the file and keep it at the same link. But people aren't ready for that yet. And so I, I think that's just something to also uh, be aware of. Now, going back to the whole print and play community, uh, has, has that been a place where you found help in creating these 3D? You mentioned like 3D, some 3D components, but like when it comes to the box and other things, have people kind of offered that up as a, a free, like, hey, I want to do this for you? Or is that something you've had to hire out? Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, I've had a lot of support from um, people that I've met through through BGDL and through playtesting. Um, I've had a lot of support from people who just like the game and want to help out, and I've had some support from from friends here. I think when you're doing a larger game, there is budget to do things like commission a, an artist and commission a graphic designer, you know, commission. I think we talked about you know, marketing specialist, fulfillment partner, all of those things. Um, when you're doing something this small, I think no one has the skills to do everything themselves uh, and having other people kind of help out and be involved in that is is great i've had people a lot of offers to translate the rule book which has just been great you know unfortunately i don't speak any other languages at least i don't speak any particularly well um, so having people translate things like the rule book into their native language is great because then i can reach those communities um, the the same tester that actually uh, created these 3d meeples also offered to translate the rulebook into Greek. So he translated the rulebook for me and then said, hey, I'm part of this Greek gaming group. And, you know, I bet they would love your game. Now the rules are in Greek. Why don't you post it up there? So I posted it. And because it's such a, a tight community, you know, everyone knows each other. They were really happy to hear about it. And they're really excited. So it's really gone where it has from other people being excited and wanting to be involved and help out. And and you're really reliant on, on other people helping out and, and adding more to the game. Very cool. And what a great testimony about how great the board gaming hobby is, the game design space especially, and, and how helpful everybody seems to be. Not everybody, but a lot of people seem to be as far as their time, their resources, their information, their their contributions to things. Uh, you, don't, I don't think you find this in really any other 
industry, any other hobby where people are so quick to say, hey, I want to help you out. Hey, I want to offer my feedback or my advice or my ideas. Like, it just seems like it's a great place to be as an artist that is very different from other art forms in other uh, industries. Now, anything else as far as designing, manufacturing, marketing, anything else you want to dive into as things that you've learned or things that maybe you made a mistake and had to figure a way around it, anything else? I think one of the things that I did have to compromise on a little bit is what I'd call the kind of quality of life sort of design decisions. And there were some things where you just have to make a decision to say, you know, this is not quite as perfect as it can be, but there's going to have to be a workaround. So uh, one of the challenges I have is the board spaces are covered up when the meeples are on that space. Um, And quite an important part of the game is knowing what spaces are available for your opponent because you don't want to leave a a vulnerable or exposed space for them to take advantage of and vice versa you might want to know okay what's going to be available for you next turn Um, and quite a few testers said you know what I keep having to sort of pick up the piece and look underneath and remind myself what's underneath it so because the pieces were so small it wasn't possible to have you know a cutout and you know notch in the corner to so you could see what's underneath and things like that it just wasn't going to be possible with the size restrictions so the solution i came up with was to have a copy of the board on the back of the rule book so that way when you're playing you can just have the rule book next to you and you can just glance at that if you need a, a little reminder um, and then that issue started to go away towards about the end of the first game the middle of the second game as it becomes more familiar so that was one sort of quality of life compromise I would say I had to make. Um, Another is in the tokens that I'm using. There's a limited number of them, um, specifically designed to be a limited number. There's there's only 13 resources available, which is an odd number between the two players. Now there's exactly enough tokens. That means you can have every combination of resources between the two of you. You know, if your opponent has four, you can have three and, and, and so on. But it does sometimes mean that you're switching up, you know, two singles for a for a three token because you've, you've just gained one more resource and then you might spend some of those and you have to swap them back again. Um, that was another of those sort of quality of life things that I would have loved to have included a couple more tokens in the space to make that a little bit easier. But doing that would have then compromised other components because I had to remove a couple of the objectives or a couple of the buildings to make room for it. So yeah, sometimes there's compromises that need to be made in that sort of quality of life space for the game. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times this is something that you don't quite learn until you get into the publishing side, the manufacturing side and start learning, okay, it can't be more than this many millimeters big or thick. I can't have these extra things that I'd love to have in there. So how can I maybe create some components to have multiple uses? It's just a lot of trial and error, honestly. And But it's something I feel like is well worth it. It's well worth your time as a designer to just have some fun with and explore and see what's possible And honestly, I feel like doing these kinds of projects make you into a better designer long term and and helps you become a designer of much bigger games because you understand the little things. It's kind of like with sports or learning an instrument, something like that. You learn the basics. You learn the little things. You you learn how to do those well. And then those start stacking up on top of each other. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you can do some really big things really well as well. I said, well, too many times there, but anyway, uh, you can <laughs> kind of create this infrastructure of, of skills and design and understandings that turn into some really cool stuff down the road. If you're willing to put in the time and effort, just like anything else, if you want to get good at it, you have to get out there and actually do it. 
But Ben, this has been uh, excellent. I mean, you have any kind of closing thoughts, anything that you want to say or leave people with? I know I've been getting ideas this whole conversation about oh, what's possible, what could we do here and there. And so I'm sure other listeners have, have been getting some cool ideas as well. And so what would you say to encourage people as far as micro games, envelope games, all that? I would say definitely, definitely try it. Uh, it's been a, a great experience doing it um, from start to finish. Uh, you don't have to spend an awful lot of time on it. You can start with an idea, flesh it out, get a prototype made in a day, get it tested, uh, and just start playing around with it. Very cool. Well, you got a game on Kickstarter right now, a game that fits in an envelope. Tell me about that. Give me like the two-minute elevator pitch for that one. Yeah, that's right. It's called Micro Dojo. Uh, it's based in uh, Edo period Japan, where you're two daimyo uh, trying to win the favor of the shogun by by building up this town. Uh, it's a game of tactical movement, so I, I drew a little bit of inspiration from games like uh, I think I've mentioned Onitama and Cerebria for that kind of tightness of play. Uh, it's been called a worker placement game, although you're actually moving these meeples around the board, um, moving them to certain spaces, collecting resources, building buildings to gain abilities, scoring objectives when it's opportune to. Um, takes around 20 minutes for two players, and I've played it around 70 times now, and I still enjoy it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ben, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter campaign. More of these really interesting envelope games and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks a lot, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?